morning. This is Radio Three. Now, Carolman introduces another mind matters. Good morning, and welcome once again to Mind Matters. Our series of bridge talks and lectures. I'm Carol Meng. Today we will have a look into the role of Hong Kong in directing regional and global flows in terms of travel and broader geopolitical dynamics. Dr. John Wong, the Associate Professor of Humanities and Social Science at the University of Hong Kong, will explain how Hong Kong owed its geopolitical and economic significance to its role as China's outlet during the Cold War. And how the city has refashioned itself since China's reform era. Dr. Wong was invited by the University of Hong Kong to give a talk entitled "Staging Hong Kong Studies in Chinese History." Many of the、uh, recent projects have capitalized on that to think about instrumentality of Hong Kong in directing regional and global flows. You also have this trend of people interested in Hong Kong as part of this collection of. Cities on the periphery of China, but I think these broad brushstroke actually sometimes can conceal more than it reveals. True, we are all living on the periphery of the big power, but then the dynamics can be quite different. So compared to this historiographical trajectory, Hong Kong owed its geopolitical and economic significance to its role as China's outlet during the Cold War, and the city has found it necessary to refashion itself since China's reform era. So much of the focus is on viability on the periphery, and we explore that through history. But then the the stories are quite different.、Uh, I, I guess it doesn't quite require a lot of explanations. How Hong Kong is quite a different story from Xinjiang, but also Taiwan too. Many of the、uh, Taiwan Taiwan scholars looking at the history of Taiwan, you know, kept telling me that oh, we had a whole million people moving from from the mainland to Taiwan、um, right around 1949. As a matter of fact, we did embrace a similar number of people from the mainland here to Hong Kong, but over three decades. So to think about that as a historical process and to appreciate the dynamics that it engenders, I think it's important for us、um, to to take that perspective instead of just thinking about it from our present-day、uh, focus. And the more recent trend is partly because of a political initiative to think of Hong Kong as part of the Greater Bay Area. So it's not really survival on the periphery, but it's also how Hong Kong and this whole zone can serve as an interface. What I'll hopefully、uh, impress upon you by the end of this presentation is that the aggregation of the Greater Bay Area into a single zone does not seem to reflect wisdom from our historical experience. And let me explain why. What Greater Bay Area is a new term. I've studied this as part of the intellectual lineage that、um, I belong to, as the periphery of the area, and of course we call it Lingnam as well. So、uh, I guess the last one is more of、um, of a definition by、um, uh, land formation as、uh, south of the passes.、Um, the delta、um, definition is very much part of a water type, a water water based definition. Was a Great Bay Area? I guess has been imposed more as a political definition, and now with.、Uh, Great visuals.、Um, our journalists have come up with great、um, pictures, telling you about the the various、uh, 
loci that we should focus on when we think about the Greater Bay Area. So I was just giving a talk in England, so my reference points is to that. The Greater Bay Area is about a quarter of the area of the UK, but about half of the GDP of the UK. And just as importantly, it has 1.3 times the population of the United Kingdom. So great potential, outrageous dynamics. But as we think about this and the development of Hong Kong, let me just dial back a little bit for us and explore the different hubs before Hong Kong. And of course, we're talking about Guangzhou, Canton, Guangzhou, which went by the various names, reflecting the international dimension of the city. And here, I'll show you some pictures of the trade dynamics involved at that time. This is the last quarter of the 18th century. And what I'm depicting here is the export of tea from, from Canton to various parts of the world. Many colors here. You can see that the earlier vibrant colors on the left side of the chart largely disappeared by the end of the um, 18th century because of continental European conflicts. Many of the greens and yellows and, and the pink, they disappeared. And in this place was the rising power of Britain, particularly the East India Company um, of Britain in this dark blue. What is also interesting is that you have this shade of red that started popping up and occupying a larger space area on the graph. And that's the newly independent United States of America, which then could break free from the um, control of the British Institute Company, which had a monopoly on the trade. Dial forward into the 19th century. You have the continued dominance of the British, but then the red zone kept expanding. And as I'll explain, it's through this red zone that Chinese trading companies actually managed to break free, at least partially, from the hegemony of uh, the British control at their own port in the Chinese city of Canton. And central to the story, a couple of characters that, was, that, that were quite instrumental to uh, my first book. Um, on the left-hand side, you have this Chinese merchant named to the West as Hokua, Wu Bingjian. And his trading partner, the Forbes, is actually a whole family complex. It started with John Perkins Cushing, um, and then the, the Forbes brothers. And it was a, a continued presence in Canton at that time that allowed Hokua to work with the Americans to at least ship part of the Chinese products to markets outside of England and thereby introduce some leverage to the um, to relationship. Now this all happened seemingly so easily because the Americans spoke the same language as the British. So what the, the language that facilitated the exchange or the transfer was this. I uh, your medical commands pay no pay no pay so much place for so fashion bohi as that Englishman pay for he bought bo he. He tea have all same same as first chop Congo tea. I mean, it's all gibberish to many of us. And I'm sure our linguists would have a field day understanding this form of exchange. But what I'll draw your attention to here is that there is a clear distinction here already of the different qualities of tea and the different classes of merchants, where they are from, the Americans versus the British and how much they, they each could pay for which quality of tea. Now this is Hopa's Persa. Let's hear Hopa's, his own voice. So he is, he is uh, reporting on what is called a squeeze. 
that the, uh, the the court was exercising on him have got too muchy bad news because Yellow River was having another flood. So the Mandarin, the Mandarin, he wants my two lakh dollar. What is two lakh? Two lakh is two hundred thousand. My pay he fifty sixty thousand. So instead of paying the two hundred thousand required, he was paying fifty uh, sixty thousand. And suppose no contendi, my pay he one lakh. This is a very awkward form of exchange, I guess, especially from my vantage point, having part of my appointment in what is called a school model languages and cultures. We teach people all sorts of languages. I guess back then you could hardly learn Chinese and English, not something that we could quite easily recognize. What is interesting though, as you can see here, and as back to my, my, uh, my old trick as more of a finance guy, these people knew their numbers better than I did. I do. Two lakh, 200,000. That's too much. I'll pay 50, 60,000. You're changing the number of zeros as the unit of analysis. I mean, I am having trouble with uh, yuan, yitian, uh, and 10,000. And I'm actually struggling now that uh, many of my, um, my finance friends are, are telling me that it's uh, 10, 10 was sub uh, qin, you know, instead of yat man, it's, it's tens of thousands. I mean, to me, it's all mumbo jumbo. But hey, this, this international trader knew what he was doing at that time. What's his language called? It's called pigeon. It was not called pigeon English. It's just pigeon. And what is pigeon? Pigeon is what we'll consider a corrupt form of pronunciation of the word business. So when they spoke pigeon, they spoke business. And in that sense, well, to know your numbers and to understand how you're trading is a good form of business. Now I'm only giving you this short overview of what happened before Hong Kong. Because it's so easy for us to forget the transnational dynamics of this whole space and the Great Day Barrier's prehistory, pre-Hong Kong, as China's interface with the rest of the world. Now, what happened to Canton could also be in, pre instructive to our future in Hong Kong, and let's explore why. So in my second book project, I dial forward to post-World to Hong Kong. Many of us study Hong Kong, and of course, Hong Kong is an exciting place for all sorts of reasons, and it's a long history than post-World War II Hong Kong that I focus on here. But it's especially important in the post-World War II period because, unlike the period before it, when Hong Kong was just one of many dots on the map of China, where Western traders, visitors, could land on China, Hong Kong became the only foothold when all the three ports got um, abolished, and especially in the aftermath of 1949. And in my study of the of aviation, commercial aviation through Hong Kong, I resist the temptation of looking at it as an inevitable development just because the world was getting more connected. Instead, I argue that this is the process of globalization, global networks in the making, and the uh, outcome was far from being preordained. Um, and again, we used to focus mostly on China and, and Britain, um, but just as what I showed in the earlier slide about Canton, the Americans played an important role in this as well. Let's step back just half a step into the 1930s. It was a new form of technology, aviation, but then as a form, as an industry, commercial aviation, Hong Kong was behind, but not that behind. Because as you invent something to make it commercially viable, it takes quite a bit of time. Don't believe me? Ask Silicon Valley. 
So in this case, it seemed natural that Hong Kong would eventually become an airport, an aviation hub. Why? Because we're a seaport already at the southern tip of China. But then we need to appreciate that in the context of what was going on already. So think of the inertia of people handling similar businesses, just honest guys, but perhaps at least in the maritime world. Think of the investment that needed to be made, not just in planes, but also infrastructure, runways, airports, the financing that you need to come up with. And of course, it's all financed by geopolitics that was um, unfolding in the background. So speaking of geopolitics, who are these people who wanted to come to Hong Kong or fly through Hong Kong? Well, you have Pan American Airways, uh, the, the Titan from the US, that already invested in a joint venture in China, CNAC. And Hong Kong was supposed to be the collection point of traffic from China to which they'll channel um, aviation air routes to the rest of the world. Who did they want to connect with here? British Imperial Airways, predecessor to uh, BOAC and then British Airways. So by that time, the British Empire might, might have lost some of its uh, luster, but British um, Imperial Airways was eager to connect the various dots on the, um, on the empire together um, through this new form of connection. I'll draw your attention to just this one thing on the map that you, that you see in front of you. Short hops, because the technology was still relatively new. Planes could not cover long distances. And a couple of, another thing that I would like to draw your attention to is that this old route or this new route for aviation followed quite closely the old route of maritime transportation. Because after all, they were connecting the same dots. There were seaports for the British Empire, just this time in the skies. So the, the grand entrance finally happened on March 24th, 1936. Um, the Dorado of um, British uh, Imperial Airways uh, landed in Hong Kong, carrying 16 bags of mail weighing 47 kilograms and a single passenger. Well, we would find it strange if we were to uh, go to our new airport at Teklapkok and we're the only one on the plane, I, I guess for a while it did happen. Uh, but it's also important to remind ourselves uh, that airplanes, skyways, were just as important in carrying information as it was people and goods. And in those days, it was in a form of mail. Now it's a click away on email, but staying mail at that time, at least airmail, was not that slow. That British Airways or British Imperial Airways had landed in Hong Kong made Hong Kong all the more desirable for Pan Am. And people were speculating that Hong Kong was going to become a big hub in no time. One article reported, few people in Hong Kong realize that the total mileage of airlines in China exceeds that of Imperial Airways. So the emphasis here is not just a connection of Hong Kong to the Americas and Europe, it's also its role as a funnel point for traffic from China. It did happen, but not until after months of negotiation. The colonial authorities didn't quite make it easy for Pan Am to uh, fly through Hong Kong, not for CNAC either. But it finally happened. And the, uh, the, the goal there is to make Hong Kong the air hub of the Pacific. Circumnavigating the globe was the goal. Hong Kong to London, that's Imperial Airways, five days. London to New York, two days. New York to San Francisco, four days. San Francisco to Hong Kong, four days. So in that sense, Hong Kong was to be as important 
as a critical link as London, New York, and San Francisco. So it's not a surprise that you have newspapers reporting that Hong Kong would become a nexus of civil aviation worldwide. But the next arrival after the Dorado was not Pan Am's flight, but a flying boat of CNAC, the Chinese carrier, uh, that inaugurated service between Shanghai, Hong Kong, and Canton. The date, November 5th, 1936. Half a year later, the long-awaited Pan Am flight finally arrived. The China Clipper began its flight um, from San Francisco on April 21st, 1937. The destination was Hong Kong, where it was, quote, to connect up with Imperial Airways route, which has its far eastern terminal at that colony. It was not a direct flight. Um, the China Clipper stopped at many points already, and it was in Manila that another um, aircraft, uh, another plane, uh, took over. No passenger on its first flight either. And the flight, as you can see here, landed in Kowloon Bay, right across the harbor from here. And of course, I'm using the word landed in a very liberal sense, um, because you can see that it's actually gliding uh, onto the side of, of the harbor, not unlike our Macau ferries these days. Uh, the colonial governor at that time, Smith, um, said, Today we welcome the final welding of perhaps the most important link in the chain of world communication. Hong Kong is only a tiny place, but our magnificent harbor has been on the map for quite a long time. Harbor. And now is our hope that Hong Kong will be equally on the air map, with London in one direction only nine days away, and with New York in the other direction only six and a half days away. So think of the continuity um, the harbor, the airport. Listening to Mind Matters, where we just had Dr. John Wong, the Associate Professor of Humanities and Social Science at the University of Hong Kong, giving us some background about Hong Kong's role in directing regional and global flows in terms of travel and broader geopolitical dynamics. Next, he will continue to explore Hong Kong's opportunities and challenges in our world today. Pan Am's representative responded. It's significant that today, at this magnificent airport in the most beautiful of all harbors, you have witnessed the first direct connection between the services of Pan American and your great Imperial Airways. So the connection of European traffic with North American traffic, and of course connecting with them, um, the Chinese traffic that um, Hong Kong funneled. So it was in this context that um, Hong Kong functioned as an in-between place that connected China to the region and the world. That only happened because of a few factors, uh, many contingencies. One, Hong Kong's status as a British colony, hence you have the, um, the colonial officials in London um, negotiating um, on those rights. Its attraction to American interests as a focal point in the region, hence you have Pan Am, and just as importantly, his, roles, his role as China's outlet to the Western world. To your far left, you have this vertical line, basically the, um, the imperial route um, stretch out to what is called the trunk route. The trunk route is what the governing regime um, in an empire or place would consider to be um, of strategic importance, um, commercial value too. I just highlighted for you Hong Kong. It's on a side route. Unlike Singapore, unlike Calcutta, it was not on the direct route. So is Hong Kong an afterthought? A simple sidebar? Not quite, because it was a placeholder. It was an important placeholder. 
that allowed the British system to construct a vector pointing north, in particular to China. Well, that all happened in the 1930s, and we know what happened, the trouble that、uh, brewed after that. But the negotiation for post-World War II aviation happened actually in the middle of World War II before fighting concluded. And odds with one another were actually two allies,、um, uh, Britain and, U-、uh, and the U.S. at the time, because American dominance of the world was to be predicated in the post-World War II period, not on territorial control, but on the access that airways would facilitate. Here in Chicago, 1944, they did not yield. The British did not yield to American demands. But soon enough, two years later in Bermuda, they did. They had to succumb to their、um, their, their their needs in the post-war period as they reconstructed、um, their own、um, empire. The British came back to Hong Kong, equally excited about building Hong Kong into an aviation hub, and Kai Tak, which we knew、uh, dearly for much of the 20th century, was initially condemned. The British officials had originally concluded that Kai Tak quote could never be reconstructed or expanded in such a manner as to conform to modern aviation standards. Where did they propose to build the new airport? Deep Bay. And where's Deep Bay? Straight to the south of Shenzhen. Was somewhat problematic because after all, you have a different regime right across、um, the border of the Shenzhen River, even at that time. Uh, we know what happened in 1949, but that's going to happen only afterwards. In that period, the British were really excited. You needed、uh, they needed a, a big airport that could really handle traffic.、Um, in 1946, the British officials in Hong Kong called、um, the city a most important link in the network of post-war aviation. They sent a whole crew, defense aviation experts, to not just Hong Kong but the Far East in 1947. To figure out this plan of constructing the imperial network、um, in this region, it's in this context that、uh, BOAC, the successor to British Imperial Airways, launched a weekly flying boat service in August of 1946, connecting Hong Kong to the UK with a six-day route.、Uh, whenever I do that, I remind myself that I shouldn't be complaining about the ten-hour journeys anymore, which was no fun. But、uh, six days, I'm not sure if I could do it.、Um, and the enthusiasm. Uh, well, not mine. Theirs in that period of、uh, of the potential, the promise of aviation seemed well founded. In the year ending March 1949, there was a doubling in the number of passengers through Kai Tak, Hong Kong's airport. Seventy-five percent to and from China. So this whole promise of China, this whole criticality of traffic through Hong Kong from China, seemed just about right. Well, in this context, we had the emergence of not one but two Hong Kong-based airlines. In the lower panel, you see Cathay Pacific, still the same Cathay Pacific, just different logos, different fonts. It was started by two wartime pilots working in China, one Australian, one American. They soon sold to a consortium led by Swire, the British logistic firm that had operated in this region for quite a while. So, think about inertia. Think about. Vested interest and how they deploy their capital to shape、um, the industry. Their competitor, an alliance led by BOAC, which is a British carrier, in conjunction with Jardine Matheson, a Swire competitor, and that was called Hong Kong Airways. Their deal, concluded in 1949, brokered in London, worked out in Hong Kong, was that Hong Kong Airways was going to control all routes north of Hong Kong and Cathay south of Hong Kong, except for 
a city that now we have forgotten largely, Manila,、uh, that was a shared spot for the both of them. What we know is not such a great deal for、um, Hong Kong Airways.、Um, Cathay Pacific, on that basis, expanded routes in the region that came to be known as Southeast Asia. Hong Kong Airways, when they started the service to Shanghai, was already not so great. Not even because of political trouble yet, but because the Republican government was in such disarray with their finances、uh, that the、uh, the carriers they were desperate for foreign reserve, and they were undercutting Hong Kong Airways uh, quite. Uh, drastically in terms of pricing, and of course with communist advances, Shanghai was gone, and then Canton as well. But then, based on the mandate, Hong Kong Airways decided we'll keep expanding north, first to Taiwan and then to Japan and South Korea as well. Well, with bad timing, with communist takeover China, for the year ended March thirty first, nineteen fifty one, total aircraft move- movement plummeted seventy six percent. Passenger count plunge seventy four percent, just about right. If you think of the seventy five percent I just quoted you for the year forty nine, you have the removal of China from traffic through Hong Kong, and that was not even marginally compensated for by traffic that、um, rerouted、uh, from Hong Kong to Taipei and points north. That endured for ten years until nineteen fifty nine, when Cathay Pacific took over. Um, Hong Kong Airways, and from that point on, BOAC basically just remained con- in charge of the trunk routes. But then the whole、um, pattern of regional traffic,、um, they allow Cathay to run on their own. So you have on one side BOAC running our traffic to to Europe, and then on the other side, Pan Am largely responsible for traffic to America. And in the middle was Cathay Pacific, running a route that was basically. Extending from Southeast Asia through a Cold War corridor that moved from Hong Kong to, through Manila to Taipei, up to Japan and South Korea. Well, the colonial authorities, if anything, were certainly pragmatic, and they decided to return to Kai Tak. Not only because of strategic reasons that you have forces that might not be as friendly towards you、um, taking over the area to the north of the Shenzhen River. But you also cannot quite justify a purpose-built airport with traffic that had plummeted. Well, by 1958, so almost a whole decade later, the new runway that you see imagined into the、uh, the harbor of Hong Kong got constructed, and uh, the um, governor at the time, Robert Black, said, "This is an important step in the development of civil aviation facilities on one of the world's major air routes." Well, major it was because it's strategic. And the linkage was important. What about traffic? It was horrible in the early part of the fifties, but Cold War dynamics certainly had rejuvenated interest of flying through Hong Kong. So much so that by the early sixties, Hong Kong had basically recovered from the nightmare that it suffered from in the、uh, early years of the nineteen fifties. Cathay Pacific also benefited quite、um, uh, a bit from it. Um, traffic in that decade quadrupled, and then extended its reach to Calcutta via Bangkok and many places in Southeast Asia. And this was the pattern that they came up with by the late '60s, early '70s. Of course, this is a stylistic rendition of what they covered. So Hong Kong at that time was very much of a regional hub, certainly a regional hub for Cathay Pacific. But because of good investments, both in our infrastructure with the extension of the runway in the in the early '70s. 
uh, with uh, the new financial wherewithal because Hong Kong was growing economically. Um, Cathay was buying 747s that allowed it to leapfrog many of the carriers, so much so that in 1974, first service to Sydney. 1983, direct service to Vancouver. So flexible citizenship didn't happen in a vacuum. This facilitated that. And it was all the more impressive because in the middle of that, they penetrated the imperial core of London, flying direct to London after some struggle. This all sounds great. They broke free from the regional network. But the important development in that period was that China started opening up as well. So you have the emergence of competitors from mainland China connecting Hong Kong with many of, um, of the cities in China at that time, more in, on an ad hoc basis at first. And that's something that Cathay, along with any of the carriers on the other side of the bamboo curtain, was eager to develop. But just as important as the business into mainland China is something that I think we can all appreciate a little bit more of now. That was Dr. Zhang Wong from the University of Hong Kong. I'm Carol Meng, and I invite you to join me next Sunday morning on Mind Matters. RTHK Radio 3.